You're listening to the Ottoman History Podcast. To find out more about today's topic or check out some of our other episodes, along with maps, images, documents, and other materials related to the history of the Ottoman Empire and the modern Middle East, visit us on the web at ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Hello, and welcome to another installment of Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. And I'm Tyler Conklin. This episode is the latest installment of our series entitled Continuity and Transformation in Islamic Law, which deals with uh, the history of the intersections of law and Islam, not only in the Ottoman Empire, but in other parts of the broader Islamic world. Uh, for other episodes in that series, uh, check out our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we have a complete listing uh, Uh, as well as access to uh, our other ongoing series on Ottoman History Podcast. And indeed, today, uh, we are going beyond the realms of the Ottoman Empire, looking uh, to the neighbors in the southeast and in South Asia um, during the early 20th century, and looking at uh, the intersections of uh, secularism under uh, British colonialism in South Asia and uh, Islamic legal institutions. Our guest today is Dr. Julie Stevens, Assistant Professor of History at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Julie, welcome to the podcast. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Stevens is the author of a forthcoming monograph with Cambridge University Press entitled Governing Islam, Law, Secularism, and Empire in South Asia. Today's discussion will be a subset of that research, focusing on the legal, political, and indeed emotional uh, context of a, of a particular controversy surrounding um, uh, issues of free speech and also the, the rights of religious communities in British South Asia. And in addition to discussing uh, that particular story, which is the subject of a, an article that Dr. Stevens has published, which is available on our website, uh, we'll also be talking about the implications uh, of uh, this uh, particular controversy for a larger discussion of uh, free speech, both in you know, broader political context, but even perhaps uh, within academic context as well. So before we delve into these larger issues, issues surrounding law, issues uh, surrounding um, all the things I just mentioned, let's set up this controversy that occurs uh, during the mid-1920s in British South Asia. Obviously, uh, a period of tremendous political uh, flux, uh, and a lot is going on there. Um, and w- and within this context, you have a the publication of a, a particularly, let's say, satirical or polemical work that uh, is deemed offensive to Indian Muslims, uh, a book called Rangi Rasul. Why don't you briefly, for our listeners, set up uh, you know the story of this controversial publication? Yeah, so this is a period in which you know you have a lot of um, nationalist activism, mm-hmm. um, but also um, tensions between different religious communities in South Asia, and you start to see in the 1920s a kind of genre of literature emerge in which prominent sacred figures in different traditions, um, you know, whether it's Krishna from the Hindu tradition or the Prophet Muhammad from the Islamic tradition mm-hmm. that are mocked in popular literature. And this is obviously extremely offensive for members of, of that community and um, a subject of, of a lot of tension. And um, one of these publications, uh, Rangila Rasul, which roughly translates as the colorful 
profit sort of sparks this very intense controversy over the course of the 1920s about whether or not this book will be censored under um, the Indian Penal Code. And so this is a, is a work that uh, pokes fun at the life of, of the prophet uh, with the implicit uh, goal of um, sort of inciting uh, Muslims. Can you tell us about the author of Rangil Rasul? Yeah, so actually the... Um, the legal battle doesn't revolve around the the author. It actually revolves around the publisher um, of the the pamphlet. And he'll claim during the course of the legal um, trials that this was supposed to be a kind of historical critique of uh, materials about the prophet's life. But this is it's really obvious when you look at this text that mm-hmm. it is about um, provoking members of, of the Muslim community. And there's a lot of efforts during this period to sort of um, convert um, Muslims uh, to Hinduism, Hindus to Islam, mm-hmm. a lot of competition between um, the, the communities. And, you know, this may have been as much to kind of establish his credentials as a leader within the the Hindu um, community. Uh, so the book is published both as as an Urdu text, but then also as a text in, in Hindi, um, so that it would have fairly wide circulation. And uh, where was it published? Um, so it's published out of Lahore, um, and that's where this um, right. controversy really um, unfolds. And, you know, obviously Lahore um, is in the Punjab, which is a very kind of religiously mixed area yeah. with very large Muslim, Sikh, and Hindu populations. And, and to be clear, the publisher is not a Muslim publisher. No. Yes, that's a, I think that's a crucial detail. <laughs> yes. So tell us about the outrage um, that erupts surrounding uh, this uh, particular publication and, and its larger context. Yeah, so one of the things that I found really interesting is I'd sort of heard passing references to this episode um, in other the work of other historians. But when I sat down and started sort of really reading the newspaper coverage from the 1920s, I noticed that you know, actually, when the book is published, there really isn't much of a reaction. I mean, there's so Mm. much of this stuff going on um, that it wouldn't have kind of made, it doesn't seem to have made um, a kind of big impact. And even as the initial trials are are going on, there's not that much attention. But it's really when you have um, the acquittal of the publisher, and then the subsequent legal debates about whether the law should be reformed in order to provide more kind of um, stringent sense censorship of this type of material, that this just becomes a subject of an enormous amount of of public attention and public debate. Right. So it's when the publisher stands trial uh, and there's a potential to censor the work and then it it, it isn't censored that uh, protests emerge. Yeah. So for me, this really sort of um, made me think, okay, um, we've thought about this about as an episode of so-called communalism, of um, questions of, of religious sentiment. But you know what? It's really um, coming into the kind of um, public sphere um, around the chronology of the, the legal case. And what I wanted to think about is what does it really mean to think about these discussions mm-hmm. of religious sentiment as so organically embedded in a legal context? So probably uh, our listeners are already starting to graft this story onto tropes uh, that continue to emerge uh, in uh, various discussions of sectarianism, but also, as we'll talk about later, free speech, and particularly the relationship between uh, Western uh, states and, and, these, uh, and the Islamic world. Maybe you could uh, describe, uh, describe the nature of the outrage and the protest that emerges uh, around this, um, 
case uh, within the Muslim community of Lahore and and in uh, British India because, I mean, this is a period where discourses surrounding uh, what is still today referred to as sort of a religious fanaticism or Islamic fanaticism are starting to emerge and certainly uh, reactions to, say, offense to the prophet often falls into this uh, uh, genre of discussion. So maybe you could... uh, uh, tell us what the reaction was and then the reaction to the reaction and how that kind of feeds the the conflict. Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things I wanted to kind of dig in and unsettle in the article is this sort of image of a kind of spontaneous, visceral Muslim rage that is just sort of emerges as the quote-unquote natural product of this offensive material. Um, because actually this is precisely the way in which the Muslim reaction is caricatured by the mainstream and the Hindu press during the controversy. But when you actually look at the nature of of the Muslim response, um, you know, there are large-scale public meetings. You know, there's a lot of um, newspaper coverage that is, um, you know, very um, sort of heated um, in its tone. But this is a very sophisticated discussion about the balance between uh, freedom of expression and the need to protect religious sentiments and thinking about what is the nature of, of freedom in that freedom is both the ability um, to, to speak and publish openly, but also to be free from having um, this very kind of um, critical sphere of your personal identity um, wounded and subjected to, um, you know, really um, uh, painful uh, uh, attacks. Um, and so in the sort of title of uh, the article, The Politics of Muslim Rage, rage really is in inverted comments. And I'm really trying to show that what is portrayed as this kind of irrational fanaticism is actually a very interesting, very complex attempt to grapple with the relationship between religious sentiment and uh, political liberties. And it's important to note here, and I guess this is where it ties into the larger monograph you're currently writing, is that uh, there's not a politically neutral context regarding uh, relationship between different religious communities uh, in India and, of course, uh, the legal system at this time. Uh, in many ways, in a way that's not all ex- not at all exceptional to India, it's true for other parts of not only British uh, em- the British Empire, but also France and other uh, world empires at this time. Muslim communities and especially um, the sort of the standard bearers of Islamic institutions uh, feel threatened by the changes that are taking place. So maybe you could tell us how uh, this, how how the authors you looked at or the or the the actors you look at connected um, this controversy to that larger context of what we might call marginalization or threatening. Um, Uh, Islamic legal institutions. Yeah, so um, exactly, Chris. Like, this is a context in which, um, you know, from uh, the middle of the 19th century, you have in place various legal provisions that regulate religious sentiment. Um, So you have laws that criminalize publications um, that incite religious um, or communal enmity. Um, And then the laws that get passed after this controversy or in the context of this controversy 
controversy are directly dealing with materials that offend uh, religious feelings. So written Mm -hmm. into the law itself is this attempt to to frame um, and categorize uh, religious sentiment. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, this very much is a sphere in which um, uh, expressions of of religious um, emotion and and piety are continuously entangled in um, a colonial uh, regime of, of regulation. I was wondering, uh, then sort of building off this, as if um, you could talk about sort of the relationship between the colonial state in India to the Hindu nationalists. And so this colonial state seems to be siding, in a sense, in this case, with the Hindu nationalists and with sort of this sort of almost majoritarian politics against sort of a new sort of uh, minority, uh, Muslim minority. And can you sort of elaborate on that? Yes, this is precisely the rhetoric that kind of gets batted around. Um, You know, the um, Hindu leadership will accuse the colonial state of a kind of favorite wife policy, that it's sort of um, uh, providing um, kind of too much accommodation of so-called Muslim fanaticism. And... uh, the leadership of the Muslim community will come back with the same type of accusation. So you can see um, the ways in which the kind of um, constant um, sort of ping pong between exchanges between um, certain members of the the Hindu community, of the Muslim community, but always with this kind of third reference of the colonial state is kind of um, ratcheting up tensions between the communities. Okay, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Chris Grayton and Tyler Conklin here with Dr. Julie Stevens talking about uh, her article entitled The Politics of, of Muslim Rage. Uh, you can find the bibliographical information uh, for that article on our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you'll, where you'll also find other uh, relevant uh, additional reading materials for today's conversation. And indeed, our conversation has centered on the controversy surrounding a uh, provocative and controversial work published in South Asia during the 1920s uh, that Muslims, uh, I think, as we've seen here, correctly identified as um, meant to uh, uh, denigrate um, the prophet and by extension the religion. We haven't gotten into the specifics of what that is, but our, I'll invite our readers to go ahead and, and, and read about that. But moving moving along our discussion, I want to bring up the the question of secularism um, that you that, that of course a lot of your your work centers on um, secularism uh, as we understand it uh, as uh, you know an emergent uh, legal uh, idea during the 19th and 20th century is very much about uh, disaggregating uh, what might be called uh, the sphere of religion from the sphere of you know what in, in the word secular like worldly uh, and political, uh, matters. Some would argue this is not a, t- a totally uh, novel distinction, but of course the way it functions uh, in the context of uh, modern colonial empires uh, has, has a certain character. So maybe you could tie the discussion of this controversy and its outcome, its legal and social outcome, to this uh, larger question of uh, the spread of the notion of secularism you know, beyond the, the administrative uh, uh, discourses of empires to sort of uh, broader uh, social conversations surrounding 
you know, the topics we're dealing with today. Yeah, definitely, Chris. Um, you know, so in my wider research, I'm uh, interested in uh, putting together a genealogy of secularism in South Asia and particularly showing the ways in which um, what functions now as secular discourse um, uh, both in Pakistan, India, Bangladesh, has been deeply shaped by uh, a particularly colonial history. And um, as a legal historian, I'm particularly interested in the ways in which law is absolutely crucial to what I refer to as colonial secularism. Um, and when um, scholars these days toss around the word secularism all of the time, um, but what I mean when I uh, talk about secularism um, is not necessarily kind of, um, uh, you know, a kind of rational, neutral, um, enlightenment perspective, but mm -hmm. rather a kind of particular style of governance that's highly invested in um, separating and identifying spheres that are secular versus mm -hmm. spheres that are religious. And for a colonial state, or particularly in this case, the British colonial state, this is really critical because the authority um, that the British um, colonial administration asserts um, and their very kind of right to rule over India is um, claimed based on their so-called ability to be this kind of neutral arbitrator mm, between different yeah. religious communities um, in, in India. Um, but in order to kind of... Um, uh, establish their own neutrality, um, they have to kind of create this legal regime in which they kind of define what exactly is Indian religion and to define it in such a way that differentiates it from um, uh, what the kind of uh, colonial regime is sort of um, claiming as its own ability to be rational, universal, neutral. Mm -hmm. So um, over the course of the 19th century, you see a series of kind of legal interventions in which increasingly Indian religion is being defined as the very opposite of the kind of secularity of the colonial state. So it's being defined as irrational, as communal, mm -hmm. as particular. Um, and one of the arguments I make in the larger book is that um, because there's a kind of particular history in South Asia of, um, in large parts of the subcontinent, um, prior to British colonialism, these areas are ruled by Muslim uh, rulers that um, there's a kind of particular investment in um, bracketing Islam as not a kind of competing source of authority um, to the, the British colonial hmm. state. So in this context, um, you see repeatedly, um, both in colonial rhetoric and in terms of legal regulation, the, this construction of Islam as sort of um, hyper-religious, uh, that it's this um, site of kind of intense, um, uncontrollable religious emotion um, that differentiates it from the colonial state. Um, and in terms of this piece of material in the larger book project, it's kind of the fulcrum around which the book pivots from this history of kind of a colonial um, engagement with Islam to looking at the ways in which some of those so same tropes are then taken on by a Hindu nationalist mm. leadership and the ways in which in order um, for a particular upper caste uh, Hindu um, 
political leadership to kind of uh, take on the mantle of the secular state, that they are actually starting to use the very same tropes to kind of marginalize Islam and to kind of cast Islam as this source of, of fanaticism and something that has to be aggressively excluded from politics in ways that um, Hinduism doesn't right. need to be. And uh, so how do you track sort of this transition and what sort of sources are you using in, in this case to sort of track the sort of transition and the pickup of this um, secularist um, movement to new nationalism? So one of the things that's very interesting about the history of secularism in um, British India is that for the most part um, in the 19th and early 20th century, people don't use the word secularism. Um, When the colonial state defines um, what this policy of uh, religious regulation is, they use the word neutrality. Um, so in part, um, some of my earlier training as a historian was as an intellectual historian. And one of the things that intellectual historians do is they trace the genealogy of particular words. And they're interested in when does a particular word start to be used um, in public discourse. And so one of the things that I trace in this article is to show that um, you know you have very little use of the word secularism in the Indian press. Um, And then suddenly in the 1920s, around this controversy, this is where you start to see people making arguments that, um, you know, uh, that on the one hand, we have this sort of danger of this perceived threat of Islamic fanaticism. On the other hand, we're going to advocate for um, the need to construct an Indian secularism that is being juxtaposed to Islamic fanaticism, but is at the same time considered fully compatible with the kind of um, religiosity of the majoritarian Hindu community. I mean, this is a very interesting dynamic that we see cropping up all over the place in the world during this time. Uh, and one of the questions I have is how is, is regarding um, the reaction uh, of uh, Muslim intellectuals, Muslim legal thinkers in South Asia during this time uh, to this characterization and, and to the emergence of this notion, because as, as we know from, you know, maybe for our listeners, the more familiar case of the Ottoman Empire, you see the emergence of what some scholars have called Islamic modernism, where, where indeed um, Muslim thinkers are, sort of um, grappling with this issue of, you know, the relationship between Islam and an emergent notion of modernity, but also uh, how um, a religion that is implicitly branded as incapable of, of fostering secularism and all these sort of emergent ideas, how it can transform or function in, in a new time. So tell us about that reaction and, 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 and you know who are who are the types of people weighing in on this on this question in the South Asian context? Absolutely. I mean, this is a kind of who's who of um, important figures in um, Indian politics um, in the 20th century. I mean, you have Gandhi, you have Nehru, you have Jinnah, you have Iqbal, Mm -hmm. all engaging um, in discussions um, about um, this controversy. So um, uh, people who know about um, uh, this controversy um, in contemporary India or Pakistan, they often know about it because Jinnah actually represents um, uh, the young man who murders the publisher mm. of um, of the the text. Um, but I mean, I think what's really interesting. Um, a lot of my article really tries to. Um, 
carefully piece through um, the the Muslim press um, during the controversy and showing how figures like um, the renowned poet Muhammad Iqbal, of course, you know, an incredibly well-known, beloved figure in South Asia, but also a poet that, you know, even I'm sure today in Turkey, um, you know, some of the listeners will be familiar with. He is, um, you know, very involved in discussions about, um, you know, what should be the legal response um, to um, this publication. And um, in the context of, you know, back and forth in the press, you know, he talks about the ways in which, you know, he would really hope that at some point the press would self-regulate, that just people would choose not to publish offensive um, materials Mm. like this, but that in the absence of of that happening, that there might be a role um, for a legal regime to take um, a kind of more aggressive um, stance. And I thought that was a really interesting kind of moment um, because, you know, I think often when we talk about free speech, we just think about it as this sort of, um, you know, absolute, should we Mm -hmm. have free speech or should we not have free speech? And what's often lost in those discussions is actually, you know, who's going to regulate speech? To what extent is it going to be decisions by, um, you know, the editor of a newspaper that Mm -hmm. we're not going to publish this Mm -hmm. article? Mm -hmm. Or is it going to be the state? Or is it going to be sort of individuals making choices about what they want to um, have publicly stated um, or or not? And that this isn't just about the law, it's about a kind of complex intermingling of um, law, of public norms, of kind of sentiments of, you know, that you should be um, sensitive to the emotions of, you know, in many cases in South Asia, you know, the um, Muslims, this isn't an abstract population, this is like your your neighbor, and why would you say something that would be so painful to your your neighbor? Um, And so, um, you know, I think figures like um, Iqbal, um, you know, have a, a, a really nuanced perspective on these questions of, of sentiment, of law, of liberty, um, that's really lost in this character of this episode as a conflict between Islamic fanaticism and kind of um, liberal regimes of governance. Right, because Muhammad Iqbal is not uh, typically associated with the most reactionary engagement with either British rule, but also these notions of modernity and secularism that are emerging at this time. No, not at all. And and Jinnah, I mean, it's, it's sort of a puzzle. Like, why does Jinnah represent... Um, this this murderer um, and you know he in the course of of the trial makes it clear that you know he in no way supports the mm-hmm. the action that this man is being accused mm-hmm. of he wants to make sure that there's a robust robust legal defense but then he also has a sensitivity to that you know even if this action was um, clearly wrong I mean there's no ambiguity in in Jenna, Jenna's position on that that he has a kind of understanding of the sentiment that um, provoked the mm-hmm. the action. And, you know, I think this is the subtlety of um, positionality that often is, is difficult to grasp and the type mm-hmm. of rhetoric um, that is positioned, you know, obviously around this case, but really, you know, I mean, at I can't help it, but I mean, part of the reason I, I worked on this episode is just the intense ways um, in which it resonates with our own contemporary politics. Yeah, maybe we can clarify for the for the listeners, go a little bit deeper into this defense that, that Jenna makes in the courtroom and sort of the, the trial uh, surrounding uh, the assassination, I guess, of, of this uh, publisher. 
Yeah. So um, when uh, Ilmudin, um, the young man who is accused of murdering uh, Rajpal, the publisher of the the pamphlet, uh, when he's put on trial, this is just a subject of enormous public attention in Lahore, but across India. And in this context, Jinnah, you know, arguably one of the um, most influential Muslim politicians, um, but also a politician trained as a lawyer, like many Indian nationalists, um, you know, he comes in and, um, you know, in the final stages of the trial, he um, assumes the position of uh, the defense lawyer. Um, And when I was reading about um, this episode, Episode, you know, people decades later would talk about how they remembered Jinnah um, and that they remembered seeing him in the courtroom and actually his kind of physical affect in the courtroom mm. and the kind of intensity of um, uh, this kind of space of the law and it, it, its interface with this very intense um, political moment. Mm. And, you know, in general, this is something I've found that we think about the law as this sort of like, you know, boring, cold, state-centered sphere. But in um, British India, when you have a trial like this, you the courtroom is packed, the space outside of the courtroom, you have crowds gathered, and you really have to think about the law, I think, in different ways, yeah. in which it was this site of kind of spectacle and public performance. And in this case, with you know this very articulate, very influential Muslim political leader acting as the lawyer um, in the defense of, you know, you couldn't have higher stakes. You know, you've had um, uh, a man murdered, you'd have you have another man on on trial with the potential for death sentence, which is actually where you end up at the end of the trial. Um, Il Madin is is convicted um, and he's executed. Um, and then what's really interesting is that, and this is where I kind of end the piece, is um, you know you've had this incredibly you know wrenching experience um, over the course of several years. And then Rajpal has been murdered, Ilmudin is executed, and then you have this kind of aftermath in which you have public funerals for both figures. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I found particularly unexpected and fascinating is that actually the public funerals proceed in relative calm and that there's efforts by both communities um, to sort of help in um, sort of making sure that these funerals can occur. Mm -hmm. You know, these are massive, you know, tens of thousands of people Mm -hmm. attend the funerals, but there are no episodes um, of of violence associated with the the funerals. And so, you know, on the one hand, kind of thinking about what's happening in the sphere of the law um, differently, that it is this sphere of kind of um, intense popular politics, of emotion, as well as as Mm -hmm. reasoned arguments. But then also thinking about the ways in which um, you know the politics of the the street play a really important role in um, the history of of this moment, but at the very end, not as this space of of violence, but actually this space of relative calm and just trying to think of, you know, um, the law and the street as not um, divided as kind of um, rational governance versus public passion, but that actually what we see here is kind of much more complex kind of interfacing Mm -hmm. of of public sentiment, of um, kind of communal Mm -hmm. regulation and of of the sphere of, of the law.
And how do you make sense of that, that the, that the aftermath, that the, that the funerals are, are characterized by relative calm, being that one might expect uh, the converse, that, that it would lead to further um, sort of uh, displays uh, of uh, emotional reaction? Is there any kind of, are there any kind of writings from the time that sort of hint at, um, or, or was it merely a, a consequence of the British heavily uh, asserting their presence during this time to keep people from uh, showing their true feelings? I mean, how would you make sense of that? No, I mean, this is a period in which, you know, the presence of British troops could have just made everything all the, the worse <laughs> in terms of chaos and, sure, yeah. and violence. You know, I think it is really um, of respect that um, crosses all of these communities for the rituals of of death and the right to kind of bury the dead in in a in a way that um, sort of is is mutually respectful and efforts um, by members of of both communities to ensure that you know if if you make sure that we can bury um, our dead or cremate our dead yeah. in in peace that we'll do the same for you mm-hmm. and for me you know this this is a troubling episode but this is kind of you know ironically it's precisely in this moment of of death and and of these funerals that I kind of see this hope that you're able to actually stitch together a kind of um, a, a way of negotiating across um, what have been um, sort of really relationships of intense um, kind of uh, communal tension. Well, um, I mean, that paints a very ambiguous picture, which maybe isn't wrong. I mean, yeah. on one hand, one could cast what, what you're saying as sort of well, this is like the growing pains of secularism taking root and kind of people learning how to live together under a new legal regime. On the other hand, you've linked this to a sort of emergent um, a discourse surrounding Islam in particular, one that's uh, propagated by the British state but becomes picked up by Hindu nationalists. So, I mean, is there anything more to say about the legacy of this particular event or that ambiguity, that ambivalence that one is left with when hearing the story of uh, Rangile Rasul? Absolutely. Um, you know, I, so I think that, um, Chris, you're, you're absolutely right that what I'm trying to kind of capture um, in these different sort of endings, you know, um, on the one hand, the passing of a new law that puts in place arguably stricter regulation of offenses to religious feeling, of the trial and the execution, and then of these funerals, that, um, you know, this is a moment in which um, the fate of the subcontinent, of the future of secularism, of relationships between different religious communities, you can see multiple possible futures. You can see a future of kind of um, a much more successful negotiation across religious divides. You can see a future of heightened um, communalism. You can maybe even begin to, you know, read into this the potential for for partition. But none of this in the 1920s is, is predetermined. And I would argue that all of those potential futures remain active um, in in South Asia, um, and that you know it's none of the the outcomes are kind of pre-scripted or or pre-determined, um, and that this episode actually continues to have a really 
active um, kind of afterlife um, today um, in, in South Asia. There's not been a huge amount written about this by professional historians, but there's a huge popular kind of historical mm-hmm. memory um, around these um, events. And one of the really kind of bizarre moments in my research was actually reading through these popular hagiographies of Ilmudin, the young man who murders Rajpal, um, you know, some of which are semi-fictional. There's, you can go on YouTube, there's movies about the life of Ilmudin, um, you know, and this is sort of, um, this is not what we think of as high quality scholarship. I mean, a lot of this material is, um, you know, it's offensive, um, it's of <laughs> poor historical quality, but actually coming across one of these books that had reprinted many of the trial documents. Mm. And so here was this kind of semi-fictional account of the life of this man, but mixed in with, you know, a treasure trove of historical <laughs> source material. Um, and, and thinking about that, you know, even today, um, you know, what are often just kind of portrayed and written off um, as sort of expressions of Islamic fanaticism, that actually they're engaged with um, these historical records, they're grappling with the, the law, um, and, you know, trying to see there that, um, you know, even in terms of thinking about like the future, the relationship between Islam and, and secularism, that if we can go back and see this moment in the 1920s, all of these kind of potential futures that are present, that we can kind of um, open up a space to have a kind of greater, um, more imaginative dialogue about how to grapple with these problems. Right. And on and on the other side of the coin, if we look at the way that communal violence or sectarianism in South Asia, but also you know, in all different parts of the world, uh, is written about um, uh, in uh, Anglophone academia. What, what you presented here is sort of a counter to this tendency towards teleology uh, in, in in writing about these types of things. Is that inevitably people always, you know, in a lot of work, people always appear as that they're on the verge of of, of murdering their neighbors, <laughs> which is, if you look at the reality, it's not the case. Um, but these these moments of uh, tension and, and, and eruption kind of often obscure the multiple potentialities, the simultaneous uh, convergence and divergence between different communities. Um, and, and I really like how that story speaks to that um, issue. Hey, welcome back to Ottoman History Podcast. Once again, Chris Grayton and Tyler Conklin talking to Dr. Julie Stevens about her research on the intersections of law, secularism, and empire in South Asia. So we've been talking a lot about a controversy surrounding uh, provocative depictions uh, of the Prophet Muhammad um, during the 1920s in South Asia. But with there's no doubt that our listeners, um, especially when hearing how the, the controversy unfolds and the multiple sides of, of debates surrounding this issue, um, our listeners are immediately returned to public debates that occurred like on Facebook and Twitter uh, in the aftermath of, for example, the Charlie Hebdo uh, cartoons and, and similar sort of things that have played out on the global stage in recent years. And Julie, I know you've, you've in the past at Yale University, you've taught classes on uh, political Islam, I guess, or politics and Islam, uh, you know, with this global perspective. And so I'm wondering, um, 
you know, in, in, in the American classroom today, which, of course, will be engaged directly with these kind of contemporary concerns, uh, what is the function of, of, of history, uh, and particularly the history of events such as these, uh, in sort of uh, creating that uh, conversation? Uh, in the classroom. Yeah, so this um, piece of work was really um, one of those moments in which the boundary between one's research life and one's teaching life was incredibly porous. Um, And I actually um, wrote um, the initial versions of this article um, while teaching my first independent class. I was still a grad student um, at at Harvard, but I had an opportunity um, to teach a class on um, law, religion, and the state. Um, And one of the things I found really fascinating um, in that that class is I actually had a very diverse um, set of students. I had students who, um, you know, grew up in, in the U.S. Um, I had a student from Singapore. You know, I had students whose parents came from from the Middle East. Another student whose parents came from Bangladesh. And talking through these questions of uh, free speech, um, kind of seeing the students bring these different perspectives to the table. Um, you know, a, a student from Singapore who the very kind of conception that um, you would have a right to offend someone else's religion, you know, seemed highly problematic mm-hmm. to American students who've grown up in an environment in which free speech is a kind of unquestioned um, good. And, you know, subsequently, um, I've teached different versions of, of this class. Um, you know, most recently, a, a a course on on political Islam. You know, I taught some of this material um, in the context of the the Charlie Hebdo controversies. More recently, this fall, um, I taught this material in the context of debates on campus about free speech, about the Black mm-hmm. Lives Matter movement. Um, and I've just found that you know um, these are topics that students are really passionate about, and that's so much fun in the classroom to kind of have a topic in which you don't have to tell students why it's important, but that it's often hard when they're so close to their own lives to kind of step back and think about these questions from multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I find that if you can pull students back, you know, into thinking about an episode in South Asia in the 1920s, um, which is unfamiliar to them, but then raises questions that are kind of deeply familiar for for them, that they can kind of think through the different arguments um, with a kind of more open attitude. And you can have these discussions in the classroom in which people disagree with each other, but they suddenly can understand why someone would take the other position. Mm -hmm. And this is what I'm trying to kind of do in the article is show, you know, why someone would argue for laws making um, it illegal to offend the prophet, why people would argue against those laws, and to see both of those positions as, um, you know, grounded in really sophisticated understandings Mm -hmm. of the relationship between religion, governance, and freedom. And of course, the history of colonialism in particular, perhaps, is such a great way to sort of flesh this out for people because when you see the role that a secular debate, but free speech as a discourse, has played in, in sort of the politics of colonialism and often the politics of exclusion of particular groups, um, it forces us to think more critically about why we continue to cherish it so much. What is it about? Um, free speech that is something that we hold on to so 
dear today. And I guess what I get from what you're saying is that part of this uh, value that we cherish is free speech uh, is not to be able to offend anyone uh, that you want to, but in fact, to foster uh, an environment within which multiple viewpoints can exist side by side. And, I, and we should mention that we're recording here at Yale University, and I had the opportunity to observe these protests. Tyler, maybe you did as well yep. as, as, as a student. Um, and it's so easy to pick apart um, this, the representation of Muslim fanaticism that is evoked anytime anybody criticizes uh, something like Charlie Hebdo or something. It's, it's, it's obvious that, that, that people are, are, are being uncharitable in the representation of Islam. But I was struck by how in some of the commentary I was reading on the Internet, mm-hmm. certainly not by the Yale administration itself, but people who are weighing in on this, that uh, the, the protesters, the, the students on campus, the uh, Associate of Black Lives Matter and reacting to various events on campus, uh, we're, off, we're also cast as fanatics by some who, like babies who couldn't handle free speech, uh, and someone who's a little bit closer in age to, <laughs> to students than maybe some of the people commenting. I was I was uh, kind of baffled by this. The, the simul- similarity in the rhetoric was very shocking. Yeah, <laughs> when you think about it. No, and I had students who I don't assign my own uh, writing in my courses, but I had a colleague assign this particular article um, in in his course, and I had students who came up to me and you know picked out this kind of same you know that this um, rhetoric of kind of juxtaposing um, you know protest you know. Sh- trying to dismiss it as irrational as having a you know over emotionality and people telling you know students to just calm down and you know to be more kind of rational and civil that um, you know whatever you think about those different positions here you can see that that particular rhetoric has a has a much longer history that mm-hmm. we're often unaware of yeah absolutely and, and and it's important to point out here, sort of as we're concluding and wrapping up, that uh, just as in the case of what we talked about in South Asia in the 1920s, you know, as uh, as as much as uh, debates escalated at, at Yale and, and on many other college campuses throughout the country or uh, and during the past year surrounding um, uh, these questions, uh, I mean, ultimately, uh, a lot of good conversation was had out of these things as well. So that's always encouraging to see, even even in a in a time in which um the the future of uh, political sanity is is increasingly <laughs> <laughs> in question sort of in public debates it's 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 important to- i mean at the end of the day this is why i love being an academic why i love teaching undergraduates because you know you can actually carve out these spaces mm-hmm. in which you can talk about these very difficult questions with a kind of openness um that you know i think you know students who are still in their late teens early 20s they can change their mind and I think that that's really Mm -hmm. kind of powerful and in a moment in which um, politics across um, you know the world is increasingly Mm -hmm. being portrayed in kind of black and and white the the moments in which in the classroom and through one's research and and through one's teaching that you can kind of get people to actually understand Mm -hmm. people that they disagree with I mean I think that um, you know I'm really grateful for my students for kind of um, um, you know, opening up a space in which we can yeah. all have those mm-hmm. conversations, which are being increasingly foreclosed in other <laughs> sure. contexts. Sure. And for me as an educator, I mean, you know, we should listen to the students and, and, and the idea that a safe space and free speech are mutually exclusive is probably needs some further reflection. 
Well, Julie, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today and sharing this uh, very fascinating research uh, with us. It's been a very good addition to our series on continuity and transformation in Islamic law, showing how Islamic law is related to all these very these various social and political contexts as it transforms throughout history. Uh, I do look forward, uh, and I'm sure our listeners do as well, to reading uh, your forthcoming work with Cambridge University Press, Governing Islam. Thank, thanks so much for coming on. <laughs> Yeah, no, thanks, Chris. Thanks, Tyler. This has been a really fun discussion. Well, for those who are listening and, and have enjoyed the conversation, we maybe want to learn more about this topic, either read uh, the publications of uh, Dr. Julie Stevens or uh, other relevant materials. I want to remind you that you can visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we have a short reading list, uh, as well as uh, links to other episodes that are relevant uh, today, today, to today's conversation. I want to give a shout out to our friends at Aja Media Collective, ajammc.com, where you, you, you may be uh, accessing this uh, podcast through a cross-listing. Of course, that website is dedicated to high and low culture of the Persianate world, uh, much like the Ottoman world broadly defined in this case. Uh, and I encourage our Ottoman History Podcast listeners to check out that website and, and see what's going on at the very exciting project over at Aja Media Collective. That's all for this episode. I invite you all to join in next time. And thank you once again for listening. Until next time, take care.